Welcome to Review of Systems, a podcast featuring conversations about the changing healthcare landscape from the Harvard Center for Primary Care. I'm Audrey Provenzano. I'm joined today by Thomas Kim. This week, our guest is Rafaela Sadun, the Thomas S. Murphy Associate Professor of Business Administration in the Strategy Unit at Harvard Business School. Her research focuses on management and organizational change, particularly in healthcare. She speaks and writes about the importance of management in healthcare and how, at times, good management fundamentals may be overlooked. Rafaela, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. We're going to talk about management in healthcare. One of the things you've done research about is adoption of good management in healthcare and how that's pretty uneven in the U.S. and across the world. So for people who haven't maybe thought about management issues before, can you talk about how one might recognize bad management? <laughs> sure. Um, so I think bad management can take many different manifestations. I would say uh, perhaps it's in this uh, you know, small frustrations that you might encounter um, when, for example, the same problems keep repeating themselves. Let mm. me give you a specific example. Um, if you work in a hospital and there is a system, systematically every time you go to this hospital, there are some mistakes um, in the way you are assigned to different rooms or to different doctors, or if you notice that there is no good documentation, you you are uh, you can people keep asking the same question over and over again, or the same problems resurface every time. Mm. We, you know, in the in, it, in, in the worst cases, um, there might be even some uh, you know more serious mistakes. For example, infections or. Um, um, you know, issues that happens during surgery. I think we have the tendency when these things happen to blame the individuals um, mm. that are in front of us, uh, whereas often these are symptoms of more systematic um, issues that happen at the level of the organization. Mm. Uh, so when these things happen, typically what that means is that there isn't a process in the background that is working to recognize that there might be some bugs that need to be fixed, um, and um, uh, and there isn't a way to systematically uh, problem solve. Mm. Uh, so I would say, you know, the daily frustrations. Again, we tend to take it on the individuals that are in front of us, but often are uh, symptomatic of something bigger that is happening in the background. Sure. Uh, so I'm curious. Uh, whenever I talk with um, folks in other uh, healthcare settings, uh, we, and even on this podcast, it's come up a few times with Lauren Taylor and, and Lloyd Mishner and uh, Tom Bodenheimer, we bring up good management as the secret sauce to being the impetus for good change, that that uh, change uh, in one setting doesn't happen because the management was poor. So I'm wondering if you could describe for us uh, what you think the, the major hallmarks of good management is. Yeah, and you know, I think that good management, on you know, again, similar to bad management, good management can, can take many forms. Um, the way I would try to understand um, whether a place is good managed or not is uh, uh, when something unexpected happens. Um, and, you know, I, I think that, again, when I see, uh, and these are organizations both in the private sector and in healthcare specifically, you learn a lot from observing how organizations react to this uh, to these unexpected occurrences that are bound to happen uh, just by the nature of uh, you know of healthcare of of, of the beast. Um, if uh, if you see uh, places where um, uh, you know when when 
big issues happen. Again, there is this uh, uh, finger pointing or blaming of individuals. Uh, there isn't a systematic way to uh, go back to uh, you know what what the underlying root cause of the problem might be. Um, if there isn't a systematic way to bring the different pockets of expertise that might help you understand what the problem is. Uh, to me, this is a good, you know, when I see organizations where uh, problems occur and immediately it's the fault of one specific person, I start doubting, um, uh, you know, on the quality of the managerial processes that lie in the background. And the, that vice versa, I've observed places where when things unexpected happen, um, there has been a tremendous amount of effort, a collective effort to deal with it. Um, and a way to uh, bring the different uh, different pockets of knowledge and different team members uh, to work collectively towards its resolution. Um, one case that I can give you that is very specific, and it's a case study that I wrote with a colleague uh, here, Rob Hackman, who is a health economist as well, on um, a hospital in New York uh, that was uh, hit by Hurricane Sandy. Hmm. Um, and, um, and, you know, it, it was an interesting case for us. We learned a ton from it. And what we saw was because that place already had an established way in which people worked together in a coordinated fashion, when this unexpected event happened, they were able to leverage this intangible asset, if you like, uh, to address the emergency. So I hope that you know that that gives you a, a little bit of a uh, of a sense of what to look for. Yeah. So a lot of your research focuses on management practices, like we said, and your findings have led you to the conclusion that many organizations may undervalue good management. They just don't see yeah. uh, why it's important. And I can tell you that's a hundred percent true in medicine, having spent some time working in it. But why do you think that is, and in, in medicine in particular? Yeah, look, I think uh, medicine in that sense is not that different from uh, other industries I've been looking at. Um, there is a tremendous problem of awareness. Uh, so in, as part of, um, of my research, um, you know, we go through some systematic uh, evaluation of the quality of management practices used by um, an organization. And then after this assessment, uh, we also ask directly uh, the managers to self-evaluate and to tell us how good they think they are on a scale from uh, 1 to 10 in terms of their management practices. Mm. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a very interesting distribution once you plot it. Uh, you know, the, uh, the evaluation that we do that I think is more, definitely much more objective than the self-assessment is distributed as a normal. So you will have some very good places, some very bad places, and, you know, it's a bell-shaped curve. The self-assessment, it's completely skewed to the right, meaning that people at the median believe that they are marked between 1 and 10. It's, at the median, it's 8. <laughs> They're all above the average. <laughs> so I think that, that, you know, that tells me that it's often hard for people to really understand where they stand relative to where they could be. That's, I think, uh, issue number one. Mm. Issue number two is that even when you realize that you might be able to move, um, when, even when the organization realizes that it might be able to move towards a better equilibrium, you know, better management practices, I think the truth of the matter is that whereas this, um, the, uh, the practices as a, at a system level 
management can really make uh, a huge difference in terms of clinical quality and uh, you know outcomes more generally individually there are some costs and um, i'm thinking for example whenever you ask uh, experts to um, you know follow a process you are you are in a in a sense you are asking the expert to um, standardize a little bit their behavior right mm-hmm. uh, and and that might be privately for the expert it might be very costly to do so especially if they don't understand fully why they are asked to be doing that mm-hmm. uh, so i think that the issue we we see in healthcare is that it's basically a, uh, it's a system it's a production system that relies on experts um and um and sometimes uh, these experts might not be uh might be overestimating the cost of uh, following a process or maybe the benefits of these processes are really not well transmitted and they're not well communicated to them. Right. Rafaela, you've written about uh, 18 core managerial practices. So we wanted to take a moment to talk specifically and concretely about uh, just one of them. And and the one we chose was about how managers uh, are able to connect to strategy and the extent to which those um, strategic targets cascade down to individual workers. And we chose this because in primary care, we're in this space where we uh, are hearing about moving to new payment models like accountable care organizations. And practicing clinicians are uh, hearing about this change uh, and changing how we pay for healthcare. But in the clinic room itself, it doesn't quite feel like that strategy or those targets have filtered down. So we were wondering about your thoughts on how leaders in healthcare, especially in primary care, might navigate that successfully. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's also one of my favorite practices, actually. And I think it's, it's an important one and it's hard to get right. Um, one uh, specific obstacle uh, that organizations face is that sometimes when we think about priorities, um, you know, I see organizations that tend to have 10 to 15 strategic priorities on the table. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you have that many, these are not priorities anymore. Uh, so the first step, I think, is really understanding uh, what are the four or five initiatives that, it's, that can really make a difference and can be, uh, tang- can, can be feasible to achieve. That is, you know, that level of understanding what is uh, possible versus what is aspirational. I see a lot of organizations already getting lost at that level. Mm. Uh, and, um, and, you know, priority, you need a priority because you need to focus the organization on something uh, that collectively people can do. Um, if you have too many, you just create distractions. So that's, I think, uh, step number one. Step number two is going back to the point of how do you achieve these goals? Um, and, and my sense that sometimes what happens and why these goals remain aspirations and they're actually never achieved is that uh, there is an over-reliance on, you know, people are seen as, uh, you know, there's a very mechanistic way in which people are seen in the sense that um, often we tend to say, okay, great, this is a priority. We put it on the table now. Things will happen automatically. So it's very important to actually understand um, that there might be a lot of frictions uh, that, you know, might, even if a goal is well specified and is valuable, 
again, the goal might not be well understood by everybody, and it might be hard to use formal contracts to move the behavior of people. More specifically, uh, you know, some, I think there is an over-reliance on incentives, monetary incentives, in settings in which perhaps uh, these incentives are not very uh, useful or might even backfire. Uh, so step number two is understanding what are the mechanics, how do you get where you want to go, and understanding that sometimes you need to really do a lot of work in terms of persuasion, uh, and you cannot really rely on uh, on formal contracts to to get there. Mm. I think the third the third thing I would mention is that the cascading process, at its best, it's a never-ending process. Mm. Um, and it's something that is done. I mean, organizations that do this well, they do it uh, with a very, uh, you know, with a regular cadence. Uh, sometimes it's a monthly cadence. Sometimes it's a weekly, um, it's a weekly uh, frequency. It it really never stops. I mean, you it's it becomes a way. Um, through which you you know you constantly uh, you define where you want to go, but you also try to understand what is preventing you from getting there. So it becomes a process um, that is done with a certain rhythm and a certain uh, systematic way, so that it's easy to it's easier for for the whole team to understand what type of progress is being made, um, and again to problem so- solve as a team towards what are the frictions that might be preventing that pro- progress from happening. But it's, it's not a one-time uh, thing. It's mm. more of a continuous and uh, relentless process. Mm. Can you give some examples of how leaders could continually message this kind of change to people who are you know, on the ground in the clinic? Would this be through you know, for clinicians' CME or updates at meetings or email? Uh, what's the medium for communicating this most effectively? Uh, well, uh, so this is, uh, um, I think that, you know, in it depends on what is being communicated, clearly. Um, again, through, the, through my research and through observation, I think that the issue here is that the more complex the, uh, the objective is and the more uh, the more th- that the realization of that objective requires coordination across people and different pockets of expertise, uh, the less can be achieved through impersonal uh, mediums such as emails or mm. uh, impersonal communication. Right. Uh, and so that's where I think being able to budget your presence and your time uh, and to be there um, for, again, uh, the, the communication and coordinations around topics that are hard to, um, um, hard to codify uh, through emails, that's where presence can really make a difference. Mm-hmm. And to be very specific, you know, in organizations where uh, this type of um, uh, complex interactions uh, happen well, uh, I see a lot of these uh, cross-functional meetings uh, being very intentionally designed um, to, you know, to have a structure where, uh, you know, again, it's focused on presence, so people have to be there, but there is also a very specific structure through which you engineer the cross-functional communication. Um, but, you know, the, the, the truth is that you need, 
you often need physical presence for this magic to happen. It's very hard to orchestrate it in an impersonal way. Sure. So you've talked about how you believe healthcare would benefit from clinicians who are in leadership positions getting some basic management training, not maybe, you know, accounting or financials, but training focusing on relationships and communication, a lot of the interpersonal aspects of management. Can you describe what type of training you would envision? And are there a few basic skills for people who are listening and who are aspiring healthcare leaders? You know, what would you recommend they try to build and focus on for themselves? Yeah, sure. Uh, so you know, the premise to this is that I think what's happening is that healthcare is becoming a team sport. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not the only one to believe that. I think that you know, the more... Uh, um, the more people, uh, again, d- develop their own expertise and the more uh, specialization happens, uh, the more you require people with different types of expertise to come together and to be coordinated in, or- in order to deliver efficient and good healthcare, uh, mm-hmm. good clinical care. Um, and so that is really, you know, that team aspect is really key in the sense that um, being able to uh, create good team interactions um, through authority, simply telling people, now you do that, or again, through uh, formal contractual solutions, behave well in a team and I'll pay you X, it's unlikely to be very effective. Mm. Um, the reason is it's very, hard to, uh, uh, it's very hard to think about a compensation scheme um, that would, uh, you know, that, that uh, applies to a team setting where often the inputs of the individuals are not really observable. It's hard to, um, to attribute an output to a specific person. Mm. Uh, and so that creates some, some complications. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's probably less effective than settings where it's much clearer to attribute outputs to individuals. Uh, so that means uh, that in order for these team interactions to work well, you have to rely on something else. And I think here the issue is uh, finding, um, in my view, managerial training that um, uh, emphasizes more the soft or behavioral aspects of management training. How do you manage conflict in a team? How do you interact? How do you create team accountability? Unfortunately, these are things that are not really part of the standard um, curriculum right now and Mm. perhaps are not even seen as being important, but learning these skills and mastering these skills can make a difference. I think here at HPS, we've uh, we've actually introduced uh, this team training as part of the required curriculum for first-year MBAs because we realize that... um, there were really a, a tremendous lack of uh, respect and understanding for the team, mm. uh, team aspects of the uh, managerial work. I think it's very important in healthcare too. Um, so the issue is, you know, uh, how do you do tra- team training well done, uh, you know, in a, in a good way? Um, I, I'm, I don't think that, you know, there is, a re- there is an existing... Um, standard where, you know, things can uh, degenerate if it's not done well. Uh, I don't think you want to create a a team training where uh, you're just learning, you're just teaching people, you know, to be nice and kind to each other. (laughs) That's Mm. not, you know, it's desirable, but that's not what I have in mind. Um, It's really more about being able to coordinate across different pockets of expertise, letting people to 
uh, speak safely uh, and expose their ideas during the meeting and creating accountability in this setting. I mean, I can tell you that in primary care, there are a lot of folks who are embracing the the concept that primary care is a team sport and that primary care should be team-based and that there are a lot more parts to providing quality primary care than, than just a provider. Uh, on the flip side, I, I, I do feel like I hear a lot of arguments of exceptionalism, exceptionalism uh, specifically amongst you know healthcare providers and then even uh, within that with primary care that uh, because of the frontline work we, that we do and the breadth of types of patients we see and because there's a strong tradition of autonomy and and the concept that the work we do as healers is, is an art, I'm, I'm wondering how that either aligns or conflicts with your recommendations. Do, do you feel like there's anything special about managing primary care providers that, that is different? I, I think, you know, if I were to think about physicians more generally uh, i might be able to you know tell you something about that are you trying to are you looking for something that is specific to primary care relative to other specialties or primary care relative to other industries altogether um i think even speaking to physicians maybe separate from other industries uh, would be yeah. relevant as well i think many physicians feel like they train for a long time to be able to provide this very individual healing skill to yeah. patients and feeling managed by some other type of uh, bureaucracy feels imposing. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, I, okay, I see where you want to go. Yeah, so the issue here is um, we go back to the idea of the training of experts. So when you become an expert, I mean, almost by definition, you developed a, a, you know, a very... Uh, become very knowledgeable in uh, a few things that you know very well how to do. Um, there might be also some, you know, status uh, attached to the fact that you become an expert, which, uh, you know, contributes to your uh, intrinsic motivation to do as, as, as well as you can as an expert, okay? So that is definitely valuable. Now, the issue is that type of uh, training and mindset sometimes can be... Um, uh, completely hostile to uh, to the fact that um, not hostile, but you know, hard to reconcile with the fact that sometimes, in order to provide good care, you actually have to bring different experts all together. So that's, I think, the source of conflict. I don't think it's specific to healthcare. I think it's specific to any type of setting where you require different experts to come together for. Uh, for the realization of a certain output. Mm -hmm. In organizations, you know, typically when you have, uh, you know, manufacturing and uh, uh, operations or, you know, R&D and sales, that's a typical example. R&D and sales see, to, see themselves as, as two very specific functions. Uh, they might be pursuing different goals. Sales wants to sell as much as possible, and R&D wants to produce, wants to create <laughs> the best product. Mm. This conflict is hard to manage, um, and so that's how I see it. I think that the issue here is that every for every type of setting where you require different experts to come together, you're bound to have conflict. And the key issue is how proactive are you at recognizing that conflict, and you know how proactive are you at managing it. And that's where I think uh, good processes can make a difference because they 
somehow remove the emotional and the personal aspect of that conflict and try to focus attention back to the problem rather than the people. Hmm. So one last question for you since we're running out of time. You appeared on a New England Journal Catalyst panel about leadership in healthcare, and at one point it was mentioned that there are some physicians who don't know how to run a successful meeting. Very basic, yeah. but very important. <laughs> so to give our listeners some very useful and practical takeaways from the podcast, what are your three points of guidance for leading a successful yeah. meeting? <laughs> I would say the very first one is to make sure that the meeting happens for a reason. Uh, and, and, you know, that's basically recognizing that every, you know, there is a, a very large opportunity cost of time, especially in healthcare where you know, people are so busy. And so already making sure that you know why you're having a meeting and you do it if it's absolutely necessary to bring together people um, at a specific point in time. I think that's, you know, step number one. Mm. Um, step number two is the fact that a meeting has to be structured. Um, and that's not meaning that, you know, you have to stage every single uh, minute of the meeting, but it's very important. Basic things like, for example, having an agenda and making sure that the agenda is known to everybody in advance. Um, these, you know, these are basics, uh, but those basics are important because that means that the people who are in the room already know what's going to be discussed and can come prepared. So that's, you know, basic suggestion number uh, number two. And I think that the, the basic su suggestion number three is to make sure that the meeting happens as part of a larger system, meaning that um, every time you have a meeting, you really want to have a follow-up. I mean, uh, Alfred Sloan was famous for the fact that uh, from General Motors, you know, back in the days, he was famous for the memos that he sent after the meetings were conducted, in which the points that were discussed were summarized and the responsibilities were also uh, put down on a piece of paper. Hmm. Uh, now, this may seem very basic, but again, in some places, these basics are not used. Uh, but it's important because it creates, uh, you know, it helps create, uh, create accountability and it helps create a continuity across the meetings that might, um, might help with problem solving over time. Okay. So listeners, make sure your meetings have purpose, make sure they have structure and are part of a larger system and you follow up with deliverables. Make sure that everything yeah. moves forward. Great. Rafaela, thank you so much for your time. Sure. Thank you. You've been listening to Review of Systems, a podcast featuring conversations about the changing healthcare landscape from the Harvard Center for Primary Care. I'm Audrey Provenzano. I was joined today by Thomas Kim. Check our website, primarycare.hms.harvard.edu, for more information about Rafaela Sadun and her work. If you're interested in improving your management skills and learning more, please sign up for the Harvard Center for Primary Care's upcoming course, the Medical Director Leadership Institute, which will be held on May 10th through 12th. You can find more information about that on our website. If you enjoy the show, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. It helps others find the show. Share us on social media with friends and colleagues. We'd love to hear feedback and suggestions, so tweet us at ROSpodcast or HMS Primary Care, or you can drop me a line at contact at ROSpod.org. And thanks for listening. Thank you.